1: And so we begin yet another week on Political Rewind. Thank you all so much for uh, joining us. I'm Bill Nygut. I want to get right to our uh, show today because we're very honored to have a special uh, guest and uh, two extraordinary journalists to uh, join me in talking with him. So first, our guest is uh, former United States Senator Sam Nunn. Uh, Many of you know that Senator Nunn grew up in Perry, Georgia. He was elected to the Georgia House back in 1968. In 1972, he won election to the United States Senate after a bruising, bruising Democratic primary uh, from which he emerged, but which in many ways, and we'll try, try to talk a little bit about this, has some very uh, strong similarities to the general election that we just went through when Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins were competing uh, to um make it against uh, in their fight against the uh, Democratic candidate to emerge from that jungle election. We may get to have some conversation about that. Uh, But over his years in the Senate, uh, Senator Nunn had an extraordinary career. He became chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee and was generally regarded as uh, the foremost expert on military affairs, in many ways following in the footsteps of his great-uncle, Carl Vinson, another legend in Georgia politics, Carl Vinson served in the U.S. House for more than half a century. Uh, Senator Nunn was also the, uh, permit, the chairman of the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. He served on the Intelligence Committee. And um, he had remarkable achievements. Two very important ones was, were the reorganization of the Department of Defense the Department of Defense Reorganization Act, which he uh, drafted in a bipartisan manner, very unusual for what the Senate is like today, with Senator Barry Goldwater. But then he really made his mark and continues to work on uh, the nuclear threat reduction program. In the early 90s, he and Senator Richard Luger from Indiana began working on programs to try to uh, eliminate the massive stockpiles of weapons accumulated primarily by the Soviet Union and the United States. And after retiring from the Senate in 1996, he uh, became the uh, co-chairman and chief executive officer of the Nuclear Threat Initiative and uh, has continued to work on that, even while he also has a role at the Sam Nunn School at Georgia Tech, And we should say, Senator, as I introduce you, one of the things that really inspired our having you on today is that a week from tomorrow, a new book about your uh, work, especially on um, nuclear issues, Sam Nunn, Statesman of the Nuclear Age by Frank Leith Jones, will be published. Uh, And uh, no one better could have written that book. He teaches at the Army War College. He's had a long career, Frank Leith Jones has, in uh, the Army. And uh, so first of all, we'll welcome you, Senator Nunn, and then let's but immediately bring in Jim Galloway, my partner on Mondays and Fridays on this show, lead political writer for the AJC, and AJC political reporter Patricia Murphy. Uh, that said, Senator Nunn, welcome from all of us.
2: Thank you, uh, Bill. Delighted to be with you and Jim and Patricia. And if, uh, if it's appropriate, I'll yield you more time to continue on that wonderful introduction. I appreciate it very much.
1: <laughs> to, well, it is certainly well-deserved.
2: young Jim Galloway, even though he's pretending to re- retire now, <laughs> he's had an outstanding career. And Jim, um, I know you're going to go on to other things, but congratulations on a great career. I won't say about you what I said about one of your predecessors, also a great guy, but I said he was a the foremost political, long-term political prognosticator in the state of Georgia, and the reason we emphasize long-term, because none of his prophecies had ever yet become true. But I've never thought about you that way, because you have been right on the mark so many (laughs)
3: times. (laughs) Well, that's, that's great to hear. Thank you so much. I appreciate that.
1: You know, we should point out that although Patricia is very quick to say she was in a very junior role, Patricia Murphy, before she went over to the dark side of working as a journalist uh, covering politics, actually worked in your office, Senator Dunn.
2: Uh, Oh, I remember Patricia well. I've been very proud of her career. And I hope she didn't develop uh, any bad habits with our crowd, but she was extremely well thought of.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much. And your crowd remains some of my Closest friends today, and mentors, and the chance to start uh, my first job out of college to work on your staff was uh, the opportunity of a lifetime, and I, I learn from it still every day. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Patricia. You don't necessarily have to ask tough questions to show that you're <laughs> independent these days. I take that.
1: <laughs> uh, Senator, Senator, I do. I, I know that we, we are. We do want to talk about your. Uh, extraordinary career, as it's laid out in uh, the book uh, that Frank Jones is publishing next week. Um, But we have to start by asking you uh, what is the most basic question in politics, I think, today, which is uh, President Trump's efforts to forestall what seems to be the obvious conclusion to the presidential election that Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States, and especially uh, his efforts here in Georgia to undermine the work of the um, Secretary of State, and uh, also now attacking, uh, and for a while now actually, Brian Kemp, uh, the governor. How are you watching all that unfold? Bill, let
2: me offer a little perspective, and then I'll get directly to your question. Uh, one is, this is Thanksgiving week, and we have a lot to be thankful for. And I know with all the noise and chaos, people are scratching their heads and saying, where are we headed with governance? But if you look at it, we had a record turnout. People care about their government. We had millions and millions of people, many of whom stood in lines a long time at risk to their own health with the COVID crisis. So we also did not have serious allegations of of fraud, or at least no serious evidence of fraud. We've got some allegations, but not evidence of fraud. Uh, also, the dog that didn't bark. Uh, so far, there have been no reports of foreign interference or hacking. Uh, to the extent there was voter suppression attempted, it certainly did not work uh, because the, the the voters really turned out, and the I think the center held. Uh, so that's that's the thing uh, I think in the broad perspective and. The other part of it is is noise, destructive noise. Uh, Let me kind of divide it into more than one part. Uh, President Trump um, basically has every right to contest uh, and make sure the votes are counted right. He has every right to go to court. But he does not have a right, nor do his lawyers, to stand up and make public comments alleging fraud. And then when they get in the courtroom where they're under oath, they back off. Well, 25 of those lawsuits have been thrown out. But the allegations of fraud that are happening every day by the president himself with his tweets and also by his legal team are undermining confidence in our democracy. Uh, there are millions and millions of people uh, that, whether we like it or not, uh, and I'm on the other side of the political equation with with am um, with for Biden but, and have been, but nevertheless... Um, it's bad when those people, so many people, are believing what is uh, being thrown out in terms of allegations without any, any proof. And the, the major thing that I have a problem with, uh, and I think President Trump really has to come around on this one, and I think Republicans at every level have to stand up and demand that um, there be a transition that is cooperative. Uh, American lives are at stake. American lives are at stake. Uh, in terms of health coordination, with the vaccine coming, with priorities having to be established, the new team needs to know what the old team is uh, is doing and thinking. Uh, those people have to work together. Also, national security. Uh, there's no doubt uh, any transition, risk goes up in the world. Uh, but uh, today, uh, looking at all the, the, the chaotic charges that are being made, uh, so far without evidence, the world uh, has to be... Uh, taking uh, a good look at whether this is a good time to test America. So coordination on intelligence and foreign policy uh, is absolutely essential, and defense matters. So I think the degree of irresponsibility in terms of no transition is breathtaking. You don't have to concede to have a transition. President Trump can keep on fighting. He can keep on going to court. That's fine. But, for goodness sakes, uh, he needs to step up and put the country first. And say to his team of people, uh, we're going to coordinate, we're going to try to help Joe Biden become a successful president because that's what's good for our nation.
1: Senator, before I turn it over to Jim, do you have any doubt in your mind that Joe Biden is the president-elect of the United States?
2: I have no doubt, no doubt at all. And I think it's absolutely clear. I think it's absolutely certain. The margins... Uh, though very tight because the mail-in vote came last in counting in most states. Um, they basically—the uh, states have stood up, I have to say. The states under Republican leadership and Democratic leadership both have stood up. They've done their job. They're doing their job. They are basically upholding their constitutional responsibilities. They are putting the country first, by and large. So I'm very proud of what's happening at the state level. I'm not proud of what's happening at the national level, because in terms of what's happening there, I would call it, at best, creeping courage on the part of elected officials in the Senate and the House. With exceptions. There are exceptions. There are a number of people who are beginning to speak out. Mm-hmm. Mitt Romney, uh, Joni Ernst, and uh, Liz Cheney. Uh, you know, I won't try to name them all, but um, there are so many people who are in the foxholes right now is kind of hoping this storm is going to blow over this is the time people have a responsibility to the country and to the constitution and i think they have to show that
3: senator i don't i don't want to dash too quickly into the weeds here but i mean uh... over the last uh, really ten years uh, uh... one of your concerns has been the deteriorating uh... communication between uh... ourselves and 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 russia at every at at, at every level especially at the military level the 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 uh Trump administration just announced that it was uh exiting the open skies uh treaty uh they've already uh dumped the in- intermediate range uh, nuclear forces treaty Biden's a foreign policy guy how much of that is ret- repairable and how quickly can it be repaired
2: well it's going to be it's going to be a challenge but uh the new start treaty has most of the verification and thankfully that one is, has is not been um basically revoked by the, President Trump. Uh, I think it was a mistake to cancel the Open Skies Treaty. We have had disagreements with the Russians about uh, the way it's being implemented, but by and large it's worked very well. Uh, it doesn't so much help America because we've got all sorts of ways to get intelligence in terms of uh, satellites and so forth, but it's a tremendous help to the European countries, our allies, because they can overfly Russia. And uh, making sure you're not going to have a short warning or no warning attack, uh, conventional, let alone nuclear, is very, very important in Europe. So this is very detrimental to Europe to cancel the Open uh, open Skies Mm -hmm. Treaty. Russians have the right to overfly the United States. We have the right to overfly Russia. Our allies, all parties to the treaty, have the right to overfly Russia. This takes away some of the suspicions. Sometimes wars start by accident. Uh, including World War I, as we know. The history of that uh, tells us what happens when everybody thinks everybody else is going to attack, and uh, they're in alliances. So uh, I think it was a bad mistake to counsel open skies. This was a dream of President Eisenhower. This was not a, a Democratic treaty. This is a treaty that, that both uh, Democratic presidents and Republican presidents supported. So we've got a long way to go on arms control. I have some ideas on that subject that we can get around to later. But nevertheless, uh, mm. the treaties that have been in place have eroded. Part of that was because of legitimate complaints we've got about uh, cheating. But uh, most of it is just ideological. I think President Trump's taken the view that anything that came before him is not worthy of uh, continuing. And that's, uh, I think, very short-sighted.
3: Can we simply rejoin the Open Skies Treaty?
2: Jim, my thinking is that once a treaty is we've given notice, which we did, uh, the treaty requires, I don't know whether it was 60 or 90 days or six months. But nevertheless, that time expired. And then yesterday, uh, the president announced that we were withdrawing. So the notice has been given. We've withdrawn. I think we'd have to start over Uh, now. Obviously, uh, we had the treaty. We know it worked for a long time. And and if if, uh, that's a priority for President Biden, I think we can. Uh, probably even make it a stronger treaty, but it takes time and that, uh, like right now, uh, it would it would, I think have to start all of them.
0: And Senator, uh, speaking of Joe Biden, who is, of course, the president-elect, um, I believe the two of you were elected to the Senate in the same year and uh, went to Washington the same year. Um, I think you probably have worked with him more than most anyone else in Georgia, and I'd be so interested to hear from you um, some of your experiences with, um, with Joe Biden that you think would give us insight into what kind of a president you think he'll be.
2: Well, number one, he's a good person. Uh, he's a person of great integrity. He's got good judgment. Joe knows uh, who the uh, good people are in Washington. He will appoint good people and he will listen to them. Uh, we did get elected the same year. In fact, I was touring the Senate, I'll never forget it, because I had toured the Senate and the last stop was to go to the Senate gym, um, and I was caught in, in my period of awe, and I talked to some of the guys in the gym and they said the new senator from Delaware just left, you missed him by five minutes. I get in my car and I turn on the radio, I'm going home, we rented a place in Virginia with my family, and I hear on the radio that his wife and little girl had just been killed in an automobile accident and uh, two, um, two boys were badly injured. So that was my introduction to Joe Biden, not in person. But, you know, Joe, for years and years and years, went home to his family every night on the train, and he made that trip every single day, an hour and 15 minutes from Washington uh, to Wilmington. Uh, he was devoted to those boys. He brought them up. He's a good person, uh, and I think that uh, he also is a person who will reach out uh, to Republicans. Uh, and I think he will offer to work with them. Whether it will work in our period of of uh, great divisiveness, I don't know. But it's worth a try. He's known Mitch McConnell for a long time. Uh, they're not going to agree on a, a lot of things, but in my view, there's hope that we can see a change where parties really put the country first. Hopefully that will happen.
1: Um, you know, Senator, I just... A, a side note here the the uh the story of biden uh, that that extraordinary time when he lost his wife and daughter and his two sons were at home convalescing i in 1988 i've mentioned this on the air one of the most moving presidential announcements i ever was uh, able to cover was the announcement that biden made in 88 in wilmington at the amtrak station he announced for president that first run uh, we all got on the Amtrak train and went to Washington as a symbolic sign of what he had been going through when uh, that t- terrible accident took place, and then had another event in Washington. And um, it's a story about humanity that you've already said essentially: is this is a this is a person who understands tragedy; he understands the impact. uh uh, that uh uh, tragic events have it's why his empathy in terms of COVID 19 seems so real but beyond all of that senator um which everybody kind of knows about joe biden what do you imagine given that you've had experiences with him for many years what will be the hallmark of his administration do you imagine what will he become known for
2: I think that Joe is uh, well steeped in the criminal justice system, and I think he will be dedicated to equal opportunity for all citizens. I think he'll pay close attention to the minority challenges, uh, equal uh, rights, equal opportunity. Uh, I think that um, he will pay particular attention to the uh, COVID virus. He will make that the number one problem. Uh, Number one challenge, because he knows, as I think most economists know, that you're not going to get the economy back until people have confidence that they can participate in normal, everyday activities without threatening their lives. So those two things go together. They're not in opposition. Uh, I think that will be his priority. And I think there's room here for, um, I think, uh, agreement with uh, Republican friends and colleagues on things like infrastructure things like reforming Mm. criminal justice. Nathan Deal right here, Governor Deal in Georgia, he was a real leader on criminal justice reform. And there are a number of Republican governors who have taken that position. So I believe all those things will be on the agenda. And on the foreign policy side, I think first and foremost, uh, he made a good announcement on Tony Blinken. Tony is a very, very Mm. well-qualified, well-thought-of professional He will be, I think, a terrific secretary of state. Um, If that happens, that's been announced in in at least the newspapers, uh, if that's accurate. Uh, I think uh, Joe will be all about repairing the alliances, because we've had some serious damage done. Uh, We've had almost uh, most all of the treaties, including climate treaties, that were negotiated in previous administrations. Whether Republican or Democratic administrations have been um, eroded, if not canceled including the climate treaty. Is it a perfect solution? No, but there are certain problems that we have to work together with other countries on. Climate change is one of them. Nuclear is one of them. Bio is one of them. I call these the existential box. These are matters of survival. We're going to have to cooperate on those with other countries in the world, including, um, uh, it's very challenging, but including working with Russia and China. I call this, the existential box, and I think Joe Biden will be conscious of the fact that we can disagree vigorously on some areas with China, with Russia and others, but we have to uh, rise above that when it comes to matters of survival of our own country and in the bio area, biological area, as well as nuclear, as well as climate, and increasingly in some of the dark sides of um, the new technology that brings so much blessing on the bright side. Uh, we're going to have to work with other countries, whether we like it or not. It's imperative.
3: I think it, 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 it's, it's, it's fair to say, wouldn't it, Senator, that, that Biden brings more foreign policy experience to the White House than any president, really, since George H.W. Bush.
2: Oh, I agree with that. I agree with that, Jim. And H.W. Bush did bring a tremendous amount of background, and uh, so, so does Joe Biden.
1: Patricia, you want to jump in?
0: Oh, um, absolutely! I would love to know um, from you, Senator. Do you have a um, some insight on? Uh, what is happening with the nuclear arsenal? Um, you are one of the few people who continues to raise that. I think it's come completely off the radar from most Americans. Um, I know it's been a, an ongoing concern of yours. Um, and any any update on that? And is there anything you'd like the Biden administration to be um, focusing on?
2: Uh, Patricia, that's a, I, I think a key a key question because. Uh, renewing the START treaty which expires otherwise right after the inauguration that's where all of our verification provisions that has to be number one uh, number two I am advocating and have talked to both the Trump administration and the, the, the Biden uh, team um, including directly with Tony blinken about what I call a fail-safe review uh, we did one of those back when Dick Cheney was uh, Secretary of Defense and um, and I think we need to do it again. Uh, that means taking a look at all of our nuclear systems, our warning systems and our command and control systems, making sure, for instance, that it, they cannot be uh, disrupted um, by cyber attacks, making sure we're not going to get false warnings. Because if we get a false warning and we think we're really being attacked, then the president has three or four, or five, six minutes to make a decision on whether to launch our nuclear weapons, knowing that we're going to have a response from uh, Russia. So uh, this decision time is getting shorter and shorter with new technologies. And cyber has put us in a whole different era. So it's in our interest and the interest of the world for us to have that kind of fail-safe review. Uh, Dick Cheney did it. It became known as the Genie Kirkpatrick uh, Commission. I'd gone over to Dick Cheney's office and said we were friends, and I said, Dick, um, this ought to be done because I was really worried about, at that time, submarines uh, pulling off uh, shore of Russia and lobbing one into Russia. It could have been a Chinese submarine, but they would have thought it was the U.S. I've always been concerned about accidental war, and so I said to Secretary of Defense Cheney, um, look, this ought to be done in the Pentagon, but if it's not done in the Pentagon, we're going to do it in the Armed Services Committee, and we'll need your cooperation. I hope you'll think about it. He said, I'll think about it. And three days later, he called me up and said, we're going to do it. So we did it. And it really landed most of it on the desk of uh, of Clinton when he became um, the um, the basically the president of the United States. So a lot of it was implemented later. But a number of changes came about, particularly in the Navy, based on that. Now, it was not a public review. Most of it was classified. It's not a treaty. You don't have to negotiate it. But what I would like to see is the Biden administration announce they're undertaking it, really make that their top priority, and um, then challenge the other nuclear nations to do the same thing. Internal review, not a treaty, not an agreement, uh, but it could make a real difference. For instance, we might find some areas where we could really have understanding and red lines on cyber, because if we attack each other's warning systems with cyber interference, that is flirting with very, very high risk of false warnings, and uh, war by blunder. So Patricia, I worry more about nuclear war, nuclear use by blunder than I do a deliberate premeditated attack. I also think the Obama administration did a terrific job, and we need to, I think, renew that effort in a big way of getting control of nuclear materials, because if a terrorist group gets nuclear materials, the know-how is there to make nuclear weapons now. And uh, it's not a piece of cake, not easy. But it could be done. A crude weapon could basically uh, destroy the confidence of the world if it went off in a New York port or a airport or a downtown uh, financial district. It'd have tremendous, tremendous effect on the world. So securing nuclear materials is still a big challenge. That requires cooperation with Russia. Uh, so those would be my immediate priorities. And there are a lot of things we can do in the long run, including increasing decision time. It is sir, simply not in the, the interest of either Russia or the United States for our respective presidents to have only four or five minutes to decide whether a warning is real or false. If they made a mistake, of course, uh, we will have uh, a completely uh, changed world. Uh, much of the world would be destroyed in any nuclear confrontation or use. So we, we've got a lot that we can do with other countries And there's a lot we can do even internally. So I'm hoping that uh, these things will be on the front burner for uh, the new president.
1: Senator, I've got to get to a break. Uh, So let's do that very quickly. We'll come back with more in our conversation with former U.S. Senator Sam Nunn. This is Political Rewind. We're back on Political Rewind. Our uh, honor We're so honored that uh, Senator Sam Nunn is back for another appearance on Political Rewind at an incredibly important time in our history as a country and in this state. Um, Jim Galloway, I just want to very quickly point out that, Jim Galloway, you've covered Sam Nunn since very early in his U.S. Senate career, right? Well,
3: I've got to confess that... Uh, uh... I was an intern with none. In fact, there's photographic evidence that we that we that oh, we both that right. we both got we got both got our sports jackets from J.C. Penney's at the time. <laughs> I <laughs> forgot about that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we called
2: it, call it J.C. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Uh, uh senator, senator you, you we, we, there's a book coming out frank Jones uh has written uh, uh the the title is is sam Nunn statesman of the nuclear age it comes out December first we have not uh i, I have not seen it i I've seen the book jacket i haven't read we haven't uh, been able to get hold of any any copies of it but but in, in in one of the uh in a presentation last week i i believe jones was was kind of the making making the point of the impact a single member of Congress can have on 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 on, on U.S. policy, uh, and, and 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 he, will, I'm sure he'll walk the readers through there, in, through that in great detail. But if you could just kind of tell us what what the Senate was like when you walked in, in the door in 1973, and what the Senate is now, what. what how different a body has it become?
2: Jim, my, my former colleagues, and not many of them that um, I serve with that are still there. There's so, so much turnover, but the ones who are and the ones who've left in recent years tell me that uh, I would not enjoy the Senate today like I did. I mean, I cherished um, every, perhaps not every day, but every week I was in the Senate, every month, every year, uh, I really cherished. I found it to be a tremendous learning experience. One of the fundamental differences that I think we need to pay some attention to, and that is the committee, uh, committee structure. Uh, when I was there, the committees uh, were not all powerful, but they had a lot more power than they do now. So much of the decision-making is now up in the leadership. And the leadership tells the committee chairs what they can do and what they can't do. Uh, and So much of it is uh, procedural as to what is really going to be permitted to come up for a vote, uh, basically denying uh, the ability to vote on a lot of things that are controversial. I mean, that, that's not the Senate that, that, that I knew. Uh, committees can be great educational tools. If you get a panel of experts, whether it's on the COVID virus or whether it's on nuclear proliferation or whether it's on um, basically what do we do about Uh, scientific and technology uh, in terms of educational improvements, whatever it's on, get a panel of experts, some of the best people in America, and you can get them to come testify, and you can. You you basically get them to have cross currents, get different experts to give their views, and then ask them what they think of the other views. Tremendous educational uh, opportunity for senators and for the country. Uh, those, that's, this still happens some, but it doesn't happen anything like it used to. So uh, I think that's enormously important. I would say something else is important. For a long number of years, Jim, and you would remember this, and I think Patricia would also, uh, basically, there was a sort of a floating, informal middle group of senators who basically were the deciding vote. They were the swing votes. Uh, those were basically Southern Democrats who were more conservative than the Democratic Party and northern uh, liberals who were more liberal than the Republican Party. Those people have basically, a lot of them have disappeared, not all. Uh, but I think that kind of floating middle can be restructured, not in a formal sense, because the leadership would take that as as a challenge, but in an informal sense. saxby became and Mark Warner did that for a while, a brief period of time on fiscal matters. Uh, it didn't quite work, but they were making a very honest and honorable effort. I think you need 10 to 15 senators, five or six, seven, eight on each side, that are the swing, informal swing vote. It'll vary issue from issue, but that's got to happen. The middle has to govern in this country. You can't govern from the far left. I mean, all of the things on the campaign trail may sound good when it gets right down to it, the far right and the far left, uh, basically, they play a valuable role. I'm not discounting the role they play. They, they move the system over a period of time. But you cannot really govern from the, the wings. But today, uh, I think too often when I say the, the wings are, are flapping and the fuselage is missing. And I think that floating uh, kind of swing vote has to be restored informally. Senator, Um, um, oh,
3: I'm sorry. uh, Sorry. Go ahead,
1: Patricia.
0: Oh, um, uh, a little bit of a change of topic. Um, When I was on your staff, you always got so much credit for being a statesman. I didn't think you got enough credit for your political acumen. Um, and I say that because uh, I think people took for granted that you were Sam Nunn and you, of course, you're a statesman and you would get elected. Um, but you originally came to the Senate as a challenger to a sitting senator who had been appointed by Jimmy Carter, um, had appointed David Gambrell and you challenged him uh to that seat I don't think that was a cakewalk of an election I don't think you were expected to win and I always heard about the 72 campaign as a staffer even in the 90s um about people who had uh joined you on that campaign and still remembered it so finally and I'd love for people to hear more about that because it was kind of a scrappy move of you, I think, to take up against uh, Governor Carter and the, the senator he appointed.
2: Well, I, I remember the 72 campaign better than I remember what happened yesterday, because it <laughs> uh, it was uh, such a impression on me at that stage. But um, it was, we had um, 15, 16 people in Democratic primary, and that was uh, also the year when uh, President Nixon got, I believe, 76% of the vote in Georgia. So it was not just yeah. a Democratic uh, uh, basic battle, but it was also a general election battle against Frederick Thompson, who had a tremendous amount of support. Um, but I remember very well a WSB television a debate we had with about 16 people on um, at one time. And, uh, you know, getting a word in edgewise was very difficult. Uh, but uh, after about I think it was an hour and a half debate and after about an hour and ten minutes, finally it was my time to ask a question or answer a question oh. basically, I think the, the question was from the moderator, what do you think the uh, key question is uh, that we face this evening I said, I think the key question is whether anybody is still watching this debate <laughs> <laughs> <And> I, I, <laughs> That got me more votes than uh, than anything else that happened that evening. But (laughs) it was quite a a campaign. And then David Gambrell, um, I wouldn't admit it then, but he was a really good guy. David Gambrell served with great honor. And and, uh, he supported me after we had a very tough runoff, which uh, took a lot of courage. And so I, I really am very high on David Gambrell and his service. And also Fletcher Thompson, we had... By, by today's standards, we had pretty gentle uh, disagreements. I mean, the negative ads were minimum. Uh, the only negative ad we ran, uh, my mother called me up and didn't like it and said she didn't, she didn't like it and to take it down. And I, I followed her orders and, and did that. But um, nevertheless, uh, it was, it was quite, a, quite a campaign. We had a three-week runoff. Um, and I thought that was one week too long. I thought two weeks. And we had seven TV debates and three radio debates in that three-week period. Mm-hmm. So um, I was out of money, totally out of money. And if uh, if David Gambrell had fully realized that and had not debated, I don't think there was any way I could have won. Uh, not that I won the debates or anything of that nature as much as it was that I just got exposure. Uh, so it was interesting. When we look at today and you got this two-month, two-and-a-half-month runoff. I mean, I'm sure that the legislative uh, forces of wisdom had a good reason to stretch it out that long, but I'll be darned if I can figure it out because I, I feel for all the candidates going through that period. Uh, you really need to have uh, the runoff uh, in close proximity to the original election. Otherwise, people forget what it's all about. And can you imagine trying to figure out what to what kind of ads to run, and what message to give over Christmas holidays and New Year right before an election. So, again, somebody probably had a good reason, but I I can't figure it out. So, anyway, that campaign, um, Roland McElroy wrote a book about it uh, called The Best President We Never Had, and uh, he really gets into the the campaign business. Uh, Frank Jones' new book is focusing almost entirely on of uh, the, uh, the armed services career and the things I did in the Senate. But Roland wrote about um, what we look back on as the good old days. But we did we did in the Senate in those days, uh, we really did have partnerships. Bill Perry was Secretary of Defense when I retired in 90, late 96. And he had a, um, a parade in my honor out at the Pentagon, which I was... Very priestly vibe. And I made a little talk and did some thinking before I made the talk. And I did say in, that, uh, in those remarks that I never had a significant accomplishment in the United States Senate where I didn't have a Republican partner. And it was true. Whether it was Bill Coyne on the Special Forces Command or Barry Gold on uh, defense reorganization or uh, Pete Domenici on tax reform or Dick Luger on uh, loose nukes and Uh, the former Soviet Union, all of those things uh, required bipartisanship. And And if you look at the problems we face today, whether it's the nuclear, biological, health challenge, uh, education challenge, whatever we have, if you're going to have basic solutions that make sense and that can be sustained over a period of years, which is what it takes, you've got to have bipartisan support. Uh, That doesn't mean that we're going to come together and everybody's going to agree. But somehow, and I ought to ask you journalists this question, how do we get back where we can agree on the facts and then quarrel about the solutions? Right now, people are grabbing their own facts in every direction. So the huge sources of information we have now, uh, we have less consensus on what the facts are than we did back when we had uh, much more limited sources. So, Maybe I could get an opinion, Bill, from you or Jim or Patricia, about how do we get back to facts and how do we get back where truth, uh, there's accountability for truth. We've, we've kind of, it, it's eroded very badly.
1: Well, uh, it, that, of course, is a subject for at least one, if not more, shows, uh, 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 Senator. Uh, one of the things we do is uh, try to do fact checks uh, a day in a day out. We went through that last week on this show when— uh, Uh, A couple of very significant uh, Georgia Republicans made some remarks about uh, President Trump's record that simply were not correct. And uh, we had to fact check them. Um, But you're right. Partisanship has infected media as well as every other uh, aspect of our lives these days. I've got to stop you, though. We've got to get to a break. And when we come back, I want to ask you about where you think the Democratic Party in Georgia is headed and how the 1972 Sam Nunn might look at what the Democratic Party is in this state today. This is Political Rewind. I'm joined today by Patricia Murphy and Jim Galloway in our conversation with Senator Sam Nunn. Jim Galloway, I should point out very quickly that over the years, unfortunately, Senator Nunn put us in the awkward position of having to ask him over and over and over again, are you, in fact, Senator Nunn, going to be a candidate for president of the United States? Uh, And... Uh, Senator, very quickly, uh, uh, for people who were not in Georgia in those days, maybe didn't follow politics closely, or for younger listeners to this show, there was a very strong movement over years to get you to run for the nomination for president, and you rejected it. Have you ever regretted the decision not to make the race for president?
2: I've I've got so much satisfaction out of being a United States senator that that, that— I would say it didn't completely eliminate scratching my head and saying what if I'd run, particularly in 1988. I did uh, I did do some of that. And I also scratched my head uh, and said what would have happened because uh, not many people know it. Bob Schieffer had it in his book a few years ago, but uh, I can say it now, Pledged not to say it for a long time, but I was offered Secretary of Defense position under H.W. Bush um, when he first uh, got elected. Jim Baker and decided after spending a weekend thinking about it uh, not to do it. But I think about what would have happened if I'd become Secretary of Defense. That would have changed uh, an awful lot in American politics, not because of me, but because of other things that happened. So yeah, I go back and, and think about those things, but you know, there you can't replay history, but one thing, the non-lucal program, which was probably one of my most um, significant uh, accomplishments, and you never know what might have happened if we hadn't had it, but it would have been very hazardous. Um, but if I'd been Secretary of Defense, I probably couldn't have gotten it done. I got it done from the Senate. So, you know, it's very hard to re- replay history. If I'd run in 1988, that would have been my best bet. I had a good bit of encouraging, mm-hmm. good bit of support. I think about 20 senators or 22 had said they would support me if I ran. Um, but whether I could have gotten a nomination would have been a a, a really tough thing. If I'd gotten a nomination, I think I could have gotten elected. I, you know, who knows? But I think I could have. But getting that nomination would have been very difficult. I was really uh, more on the conservative side, fiscally, of the Democratic Party. Uh, I hope I was just as progressive on the, on the racial issues as uh, any Democrats. I voted for the Voting Rights Act, and uh, that was a very tough vote. But I was very Uh, conscious of how important that was. So I don't know what would have happened, but um, uh, I don't second guess very much, Bill, because I really love the Senate. I loved all the 24 years I was there. And basically, I've been able to, I've been blessed because of Ted Turner and Warren Buffett and others in funding the nuclear threat initiative, I've been blessed with uh, what sometimes I think is the best of all worlds, to not be in politics, but to continue to very much be in public policy.
1: So, Senator, real quickly, from my point of view, I want to make this as quick a a question as possible. The 1972 Sam Nunn, or for that matter in most of your races, you... For, for a lot of time, you were essentially running. Uh, you're right that obviously President Nixon won in 72 by 70, with 70 percent of the vote, and yet you as a Democrat won. But you had that yellow dog Democrat, more conservative base to call upon, it seems to me. And as you just said a minute ago, you were a more conservative Democrat throughout your career. You were one of the founders of the Democratic Leadership uh, counter in the mid-'80s looking to find a new way for more conservative Democrats to have an impact on the national scene. What would the Sam Nunn of those days do in the Democratic Party of Stacey Abrams today who t- in, 19- in 2018 said, no, we can, we can build a base around progressive Democrats and we can win statewide races And although she didn't win the governorship, she certainly positioned the state for Joe Biden to win. Where would Sam Nunn fit into that party today?
2: Well, I'm an admirer of Stacey. I think she's done a tremendous job in Georgia and basically getting an awful lot of people involved in the democratic process. Uh, She also, when she was a minority leader, she she worked across the aisle with Republicans. We forget that. Uh, I also um, uh, have, have gotten to know... Pretty darn well. Michael Thurman, who is um, chief executive officer in DeKalb County, is one of our huge, huge population areas that doesn't get as much attention as as Atlanta. But, uh, you know, Michael and I have talked about a lot of different issues where I think we could agree. Uh, And um, I think the Democratic Party is a coalition of uh, white voters and black voters and, you know, Asian voters and Latinos and so forth and so on. That's a broad coalition. But I also have to add, I think, over the long haul, it's important that the Republican Party have diversity also. Right now, uh, there is a, a balance. And if the Republican Party becomes a white party, uh, I don't think it's good for Georgia. I don't think it's good for the Republican Party in the long run. It may, they may win some elections that way. But uh, that battle's got to go on in the Republican Party. I won't solve that for them. But I think both parties uh, need to have uh, participation from minorities I think is much healthier uh, and I was very proud of the effort that was made this year by the forces supporting Joe Biden it was truly a coalition I'd like to see the breakdown I haven't seen it of how many uh, you know uh, how, how the black vote turned out compared to recent elections and how the uh, white vote but obviously there was a, a very large turnout and I, I think that's very 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 healthy Uh, we've got to work together. Georgia has a diverse state. That's got to be a strength. It can be a strength. Uh, Our state will prosper if we work together across not just uh, white, black, and so forth, but also across uh, party lines. And a lot of times that happens at the state level. It happens more at the state level than it does at the national level. Uh, For instance, I'm proud that um, our Secretary of State has stepped up in his Constitutional responsibilities in the selection, and also uh, Governor Kim. Uh, and I think when the, the other party steps up, I think they ought to be patted
1: on the back. Hey, hey Jim, it's, let it's, me it's, get Jim in here because we're really running out of time. Okay.
3: Very, very very, quickly, uh, Senator, have you gotten involved in the in, in either of the, the, the two current Senate runoffs? I mean, has, has Raphael Warnock, John Ossoff, or even David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler, have they reached out and had any conversations with you?
2: Well, I haven't had um, uh, many conversations, but I've certainly talked to Reverend Warnock. I've talked to John Ossoff. I'm, I'm going to support the Democratic candidates. I think we've got two good candidates. Um, I, I think, uh, I hope all of our candidates, particularly um, our Republicans who are there now and who've got a role to play in the next 60 days, whether they win or lose in, their, in the runoff. they they, they got to step up right now. This is a crucial moment. It's a dangerous moment for America. They've got to step up and basically say to President Trump, we want you to cooperate in the transition. This is a, their constitutional responsibility, preserve and protect our democracy. So I have frankly, uh, been disappointed in that silence so far. I hope uh, whoever's elected, I hope if Reverend Warnock is elected or John Ossoff is elected, uh, they won't simply go up there and be, you know, automatic votes for the Democratic uh, position, whatever it is. I hope they're independent thinkers. Georgia has a tradition of independent thinkers in the, in the Senate. Go back to Walter George when President Roosevelt, at the peak of his popularity in Georgia, tried to purge Walter George, and he accepted the challenge. Um, uh, my father used to say to me, uh, I've never worn any, any man's collar. Uh, and I really believe that that independence is part of the checks and balances we have. And the Senate is given a six-year term uh, for a purpose. They're supposed to be independent. They're not supposed to be in the amen corner. Uh, no matter who the
1: president. Senator, no, I, I, I'll i stop right there. I apologize. <laughs> I've got to jump in. You, Senator, we are out of time. I wish we had another hour. You've been tremendous in giving us so much time and offering us your wisdom. Thank you enormously. Patricia Murphy, Jim Galloway, thank you for being part of this conversation today. Senator Nunn again. Our thanks for a wonderful conversation uh, with you. Um, we're back again tomorrow, of course, with another show. Um, until then, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask. And, you know, it's the end of November. I'm not even going to say get a flu shot because he should have had it uh, by now. But, but early voting has started. Make sure you vote. See you tomorrow.